in the early 1990s as the struggle to end apartheid in South Africa was reaching its climax, a group of black and white spiritual leaders and leaders in the church met in a hotel in the northern part of the country. Some of the white leaders had been guilty of harming the black South Africans, and other people there were victims themselves. Uh, The group met to answer two questions. One, could the black South Africans ever forgive? And two, could blacks and whites in the country ever really be united? Desmond Tutu, an Anglican bishop, was present and spoke for many of the black South Africans and answered the first question in this way, quote, the victims of injustice and oppression must be ever ready to forgive. That is a gospel imperative. But he didn't stop there, though. When addressing the issue of unity, he says this, quote, those who have wronged must be ready to make what amends they can. If I have stolen your pen, I can't be contrite when I say, please forgive me, and at the same time I keep your pen. If I am truly repentant, then I will demonstrate this repentance by returning your pen. Then reconciliation, which is always costly, will happen. For you and me, the question before us today, looking at this passage, is does forgiveness bring a difference in a relationship? Can people forgive one another and not make changes that reflect that forgiveness? These questions may seem like they're easy to answer, and on paper they're absolutely easy to answer, but in reality of our own lives, these are very difficult things. We we know that saying we forgive you or I forgive you is easy. Living it out is something altogether different. When that forgiveness demands a change in your life or in your thinking, it's much harder, isn't it? Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage that can be preached in a number of different ways. There are issues addressed in here that can be dealt with in different ways, but I want to focus specifically on relationships and diving even more in depth. I want to look at relationships inside of the local church. With that said, I think this passage can be applied to every relationship that we have. So if you're not a member of this church or, or you're visiting today and you say, well, I, this doesn't mean anything to me, absolutely it does because you can apply this to every single relationship that you have. But Paul's focus here in the letter to Philemon was that there was a, a disagreement between two people. There was a, a problem between two members, well, now members of the church. And Paul cares for the unity of the body. Paul cares that everybody has, is, is unified around one thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want just peace for the sake of peace. He wants peace for the sake of the gospel. Our relationships that we have in this church matter more than just your need for friendship. And you may say, well, the church membership, the, the friendships or the relationships I have matter for my discipleship and my encouragement but it's bigger than that too. All wonderful things though, but our relationship in the church are also more important because they are part of our gospel witness. They they matter more than just for friendship and for discipleship, and you may not see this clearly, 
But I'd encourage you to think of a, of a church, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, maybe in the community, wherever it may be, that has a bad reputation. Do you think that people who aren't Christians want to be part of that? Uh, do you think that people who are new to the, the, the story of Christ and who are new Christians, do you think they want to come into a place where there's disunity and the community outside knows it? Or do you think that a church is much more attractive when it's known for the love that they have for one another in their neighborhood? We're known to be, we're supposed to be known by our love, aren't we? So, so how does this happen? Well, in this passage, Paul explains this. He, he stretches this out for us. Paul models this in verses 8 through 16. The first thing he does is he shows our need for humility. This is verses 8 and 9. And in these two verses, he does two things. First, he does not throw his weight around. Look at verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. He could come in and say, I'm Paul, you're not, do what I say. Those of you who, who, who are or have been in a position of leadership, you know, especially in a job that, that's outside of a, of a ministry or a nonprofit, bottom line is making money. And if someone doesn't make money, you say, do what I say or you lose your job. That, that's what a leader can do, that a boss can do that. The Apostle Paul has planted these churches the Apostle Paul, outside of Jesus, is the most famous name in churches at this point and still today. But he doesn't do that. Paul doesn't come in and say, I'm Paul, do what I say. He's not a rock star who's demanding that everyone bow at his feet. You gotta ask, why doesn't he do that? I mean, he, he's an apostle, he's one of the few. He, he, he met Jesus. He, he heard Jesus. Jesus specifically said, Paul, I've got a job for you to do. He's big time. So why doesn't he demand it? Because Paul's a pastor. He, he is a shepherd. He, he knows what everyone needs to do, but he's trying to help them along. See, here's the thing, and I fail at this all the time, but a good leader, a leader that has success, a leader that has people follow after him, doesn't just come in and bark out orders and doesn't just get rid of people when they don't do what they're supposed to do. A good leader helps people to learn themselves. Guidance. A good teacher does the same thing, don't they? A good teacher isn't just sharing knowledge over and over. No, a good teacher teaches people, teaches their students how to learn for themselves. And so Paul's not barking out orders and telling them what they have to do. Paul's appealing to Philemon. He's saying, buddy, I want you to know what I believe, but ultimately, and we'll see this later, the choice belongs to you. And this is what he, he says in verse 9. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Everything that Paul says is coming from a place of love. Love for God, love for one another, love for those outside of the faith. And Paul's argument is airtight. 
who in their right mind could argue against a command to love more? Who could oppose the call to sacrifice more for the sake of others? Paul loves Philemon. And he's asking him to do something that may have been difficult for Philemon. It, it likely was difficult. It doesn't come natural to the flesh. Paul would have to decide, Philemon, excuse me, would have to decide between doing what he wanted and what he believed he deserved and what would ultimately make him look foolish to some and a loser to others versus, on the other end, sacrificially loving someone. It's not in the text. But what Jesus did for us is foundational to everything that Paul has written. See, Philemon is a believer. He's, he's part of the church. He's influential in the church, and which means he knows the gospel. He, he's put his faith and trust in Christ. He, he's been called, loved, forgiven, justified, and adopted. He awaits the day that he is one day glorified. He knows all of that. So Paul is nudging him a little bit. Paul's saying, hey, remember what Jesus did for you. It's your turn, Philemon, to show that grace to Onesimus. Paul wants peace. And to get that requires him to be humble. Paul's not only concerned about Onesimus' freedom, but he wants Philemon to grow in his faith. Paul says that he's an older man than Philemon. Paul, an old man sitting in prison, is trying to disciple from a distance Philemon to help him grow in his faith. Forcing him to do what Paul wants will likely lead to Philemon discounting Paul's authority in the future, and Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants to bring Philemon closer to Jesus, and he does that through his humility. The next thing Paul does is show the need for honesty. In verse 10, Paul makes an appeal. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul's discipled Onesimus. Whether Onesimus came to Christ before doesn't really matter. Paul is influential in this man's growth. This man has learned doctrine, learned truth, and learned theology from Paul. And what Paul is saying is that the man who ran away is not the same man he's sending back. He's a changed man in the same way that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, you are not the same person you were before. You are different. You think differently, you behave differently, you, you, you have a different mindset and different desires, you, you crave the, 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 the fellowship of the local church where you once didn't. Onesimus is not the same guy. And Paul expands on that in verse 11 when he writes this, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. In your Bible, you may see a little uh, a sub-point in there that the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul's playing on names here and playing on words to say, look, he, he used to be useless, but now he is Onesimus, the useful one. He matters now. Sure, he had worth, he had value because he's created in the image of God, but now he's something bigger and better than he was. 
Think about how our relationships, relationships would be and how they would look if we followed what Paul has done. In my early 20s, I worked at a, uh, a retail store and I was recruited to go work at a, computer, uh, a competitor's um, store as well. And, and as I got there, my direct supervisor um, didn't like me. I tried everything I could to earn her respect and earn her friendship and nothing worked. And, and, and I would watch as my fellow coworkers in my department would do something and I would do the exact same thing and do it well and, and she would figure out a way to be negative towards it. I wanted her to appreciate me because I didn't want to go to work every day and be miserable. I didn't want to hate going into work with her being there and I tried everything I could and nothing seemed to work. But then one day, everything changed. I noticed that she was more friendly towards me. She was giving me more praise than she had ever done before. She saw me differently. In other words, I went from being useless to her to useful to her. And I think about churches and the relationships that we have and there are moments, and, and, and don't shout them out certainly, but, but we can think of people in our lives and in our church that we would deem as not being very useful. Not, not being worth much to us. And I think about how damaging that is to the fellowship. I think about how damaging this issue could have been to the church in Colossae, that, that if, if Paul had not addressed this, Onesimus comes back and Philemon grabs him and punishes him and puts him into slavery, or maybe worse, and nothing's changed. And how damaging this would have been. And I see Paul's attitude and Paul is desiring more than anything else that the gospel shines through the unity of this local church. And then he continues. In verses 12 and 13, we see the need for principles. First, in verse 12, Paul says that he was sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and he was doing this in good faith. Paul says he didn't know what would happen to his new friend, but he trusted that Philemon would do what's honorable. In fact, Paul says that he is sending his very heart back to Philemon. As Paul was locked away, Onesimus brought him great comfort. It was enough of a friendship for Paul to say that Onesimus was his very heart. He's already called him his child in the Lord, and now he says, this is my heart I'm sending back. Why does he feel this way? Look at verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul loved Onesimus, and when you love someone, you want what's best for them. We don't know much more about the details of this relationship, but we do know that there was a bond that the two had while Paul was in Rome. But even though Paul would have preferred Onesimus to stay with him, he sends him back. And this is the need for accountability in verse 14. Paul writes this, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Simply put, Paul defers to Philemon. Paul has given up his rights and his preferences and say, Philemon, this is your decision. 
Do you notice that Paul has not written a single harsh word for Philemon? You do know this isn't normal, don't you? It, it, it wasn't normal then, and it's certainly not normal now. We don't, let me rephrase that, I don't want to back down. I don't want to surrender my rights or my authority or my preferences because, well, I think I'm right. Paul thought he was right, but he said, Philemon, I'm going to go with what you say on this. I don't want any, to do anything without your consent. Paul defers to Philemon. And again, what would change in our lives if this was our way of living? How different would our lives be is if we behaved and acted like Paul here? Do you think that our marriages might be a little bit better if we practiced the, the act of deferring to the other? Do you think that our, our relationships in our jobs would be a little different if we deferred to the other? Do you think our church would be different? And churches everywhere? If we weren't so uh, uh, cemented in what we want and what we think, and we said, brother, sister, I defer to you on this one. This is what Paul's modeling for us. And building on that, in verse 15 and 16, we see the need for relationship. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. To Paul, slave and free were equal. He says as much in Galatians 3. Now, again, we're, we read this and we're like, well, that's pretty obvious. I mean, we, we, we know that, that all human beings are created equal, right? That we, we know that God has created every single person with worth and with value and with dignity. We know that. But you've got to understand the culture that Paul is writing into. For Paul to say this, especially what he said in Galatians 3, was extremely countercultural. Paul asked Philemon not just to welcome him back as a slave. He said, no, 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 welcome him back as a brother now. Paul doesn't explicitly command Philemon to free Onesimus, but it's clear that's what he wants. He says, Philemon, Onesimus has value to the church. You may have not thought so, but I'm seeing it, man. He's encouraging me. He's got gifts that can be used to build up the church. At the time of this letter, some estimates say that there was 30% of the population were slaves. Even though slavery had a, a different connotation, uh, there were levels of slavery that, 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 that we maybe didn't have here, certainly. Uh, but regardless of what levels there may have been and what types of slavery there may have been, slavery was still inhumane and unjust. To claim that everyone was created equal that Paul says, and all human beings have worth, was shocking to people. Now, to pause that for a second. 
You may wonder why Paul didn't outright condemn slavery. If slavery was such an evil, why is there nothing in Scripture saying, end it, stop it? Like Paul, Jesus didn't condemn it either, so are we left to believe that slavery is okay with God? Now, remember what both Jesus and Paul did in their ministry. They took the social norms of the day and they flipped them over. Think about all the things that that you know that Jesus did. Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of one of his parables. The Samaritan, the unclean, the enemies of the Jews. Stay away from them. Don't interact with them. And Jesus says that the Samaritan is the hero here. Jesus met another Samaritan, the woman at the well, who was married five times, and the man she was living with was not her husband. So she had one of those reputations, you know, the one that people talk after she leaves the room. And not only did Jesus talk to her, he gave her truth. He did something that no upstanding Jew, let alone a rabbi, would do. He flipped the script of what culture says is acceptable. Jesus told his followers who were Jewish, salvation doesn't just belong to you. Jesus says salvation belongs to every tribe, nation, and tongue. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. He elevates the role of women in the church at a time when women were were not respected or accepted. They were second-class citizens. And Paul says, I'm going to name some women who have helped in the church and helped me. See, there are many, many other examples of both Jesus and Paul flipping cultural norms upside down. Neither came to perpetuate the culture of the day. They both came to proclaim the good news of the gospel and how it changes hearts and minds. Now keep that in mind. Dan Kimball, a pastor in California, wrote a book that I've quoted um, many times, and I think it's, it's a very helpful book. It's called How Not to Read the Bible. And, and in it, he, he tackles some of those difficult parts of Scripture that, that, that people who, who are opposed to our faith try to get us hung up on. And in his book, he spends a few paragraphs addressing Paul's letter to Philemon and what Paul's intentions were regarding slavery. Now, he writes that there is a progression of instruction, meaning that there is this kind of unfolding revelation that's happened throughout Scripture. And this is what he says. The Old Testament gave guidance to protect slaves and give them more dignity. This made Israel distinct from other nations. The New Testament moves one step further, declaring that regardless of whether one is a slave or the one the slave serves, they are equals, brothers and sisters in Jesus. Two foundational ideas guide this progression. The first is that God originally created us in his image, and all human beings have value and worth because of this. The second is that in the New Covenant, all those who follow Jesus are now part of the same family, brothers and sisters, And this takes priority over all social, economic, racial, and gender distinctions. And you say, well, Paul's writing about a a slave owner and a slave, and none of us here have any slaves. How do we apply this to lives now? And I say, well, you may not have slaves, but you certainly, because I know this from my own perspective, and I, I know many of you, we all have conflicts in relationships 
There's not a person alive who doesn't have areas of growth in terms of connecting or having relationships with one another. We've, we've all been a part of those, and inside the church, we've either been part of it or we've witnessed it. So how do we take what Paul writes and apply it to our lives today? Now, this is important because I think this is so transformative uh, about the Christian faith. We are always, always supposed to be looking outward. In our lives, we look outward. Now, yes, yes, we do look inward. We examine our hearts and all of that. But our intention as a local church family is to be looking outward, outward to one another and outward to the community. See, in the New Testament, you'll find the term one another at least 100 times. The world, even of Paul's day, was focused on the individual. What could they get for themselves? Today we talk about money or we talk about freedom, but Paul says that he neglects to use his own rights, he neglects to use his freedom for the sake of someone else. If doing something hinders the growth of a fellow believer, stop it. Right? That's what Paul's saying. And if not doing something hinders the growth of a fellow believer, you start doing it. All this to say the Christian faith demands that we look outward. It demands that we follow the pattern that Jesus has given to us, set aside our desires and our preferences for the good and growth of our brothers and sisters. For Philemon, the answer was clear. He needed to free Onesimus and make sure that he was taken care of, not out of obligation, not because Paul said so, but rather because Onesimus was now a brother in Christ. They were members of the same family. But see, freeing Onesimus wasn't enough for Paul. Philemon could have done that and then rejected Onesimus, like a kid who, you know, we force our children to say, I'm sorry about something. I'm sorry. They don't really mean it. They're just doing it to get us off their backs, right? Philemon could have responded that way and said, all right, Paul, he's free. Onesimus, go find another church. I don't want you here. Paul says, don't do that. that. That's not good enough. Paul wrote this letter not just to free a slave, but to bring reconciliation to the church. The gospel talks about reconciliation between us and God. God sent Jesus so that he could be the bridge to, to bridge that gap that, that our sin has created between us and God. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Reconciliation happens only through Christ. But hear me, the fruit of that reconciliation is reconciliation between people. We've been forgiven, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, and the fruit of that, the external evidence of that is reconciliation between one another. To reconcile means to restore a relationship or to make something or some people exist in harmony. What's happening in Paul's letter right now is him pleading with Philemon to reconcile with his brother Onesimus. Philemon has all the power here, doesn't he? He could demand the return of Onesimus and go back as if nothing happened. The ball is in his court, so he's facing a decision. Now you may wonder, well, what's the fuss all about? 
When we have a problem with someone in the church, what do we do? We, well, really, one of three things. We, we could just go find another church, right? It happens. We get away from people we don't like, and so we, we just go to a new church. We can stay and wait for the person to be so annoyed that they leave. Or we stay and we complain and gripe and make sure that everyone else is un as unhappy as we are. Those are usually the three, the three scenarios that happen inside of a church. Now, I, I can't stress this enough. From this text, what I see, relationships matter in the local church. Relationships matter inside the church because these are people that we're spending eternity with. If you want to, after the service, start looking around and seeing, man, I'm going to spend eternity with this guy. We're called to something bigger, and this is our eyes are focused on, on, on what God has promised to us, and one of those promises is that we will spend eternity worshiping him. Relationships matter because you also cannot have a healthy, functional church when it's infected with disease or sickness. See, this matters. Jesus in Matthew 18 talks about what to do when there's unrepentant sin in the church. And after all of the, the options that Jesus has given are exhausted, Jesus says, send them out as a non-believer. See, issues that go unresolved and sin that's ignored is a stain on the church and it causes us to forget our purpose for existence, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we cannot enjoy and glorify God when we ignore what he says. But repairing relationships in the church is important for another reason. And this is one that I've overlooked for so long. And, 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 and it's, it's been within the last few years that I'm starting to see this more our neighbors who do not know Christ know when a church is sick. Your neighbors know that you attend a church that has a bad reputation or that has a good reputation. They know. Those who are outside of the family of Christ, those who are outside of a local church in our community know what's happening here. And the truth is, we are the only Bible that some people may ever read. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are called to love each other, and that is a component of evangelism. When we are unified around the gospel despite our personal preferences or our non-essential theological differences, it's known by people outside of this congregation. And when we're dividing over non-essential doctrine, people know that too. Paul is pleading with Philemon to see Onesimus in a different way. No longer is he an enemy, someone who harmed him and, and, and made his financial situation a little bit worse. Paul says, welcome him. He's not even an enemy anymore. He is a brother. And to Paul, not only does this explain the gospel of God saving his enemies, but this also typifies the Christian life. Recently, I came across somehow a video of a guy explaining a conversation he had with 
a, a Navy SEAL, a former Navy SEAL, and someone had asked this Navy SEAL, who makes it through? Now, if you've ever watched the training they do, it's brutal. It, 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 I, I can't even think about it. It makes me sore and hurt. And, and, and only about 25% of the people who begin the Navy SEAL training actually make it through to the end. Now, keep in mind, these guys are the, and women are the 1% of the 1%, and only 25% of the 1% of the 1% make it through. And, and, and he says this. He says, I can't really go into talking about who makes it through, but he said, I can at least tell you who doesn't make it through. He said, the star athletes don't make it through. The guys coming in with big muscles don't make it through. The, the type A leaders don't make it through. He said, I can share this. The one trait, every single person that makes it through the most grueling physical and mental training that we can imagine, the type of people that make it through are this. When they're at their lowest point, their bodies start to shut down and their brains are screaming for them to quit. But they all do something together. They find a way to help the person next to them. He says, every person that makes it through figures out a way to lift their brother or sister up. He said, it's not their intelligence, it's not their strength that makes them a success. Instead, it's their willingness to be there for one another when they're at the lowest. And I'm watching this video, and I'm thinking, I've known this for my whole life. This, is, this has been clear for 2,000 years. God has given us something that is there to lift us up when we're at our lowest. I thought about how these Navy SEALs and these guys and, and women going through training would have had moments where they didn't like one another. Sure, there were some arguments, maybe some fights. You put enough people together, especially with as much testosterone as some of those guys may have, you're going to have disagreements and you're going to have some things that happen out in the back lot. But when they're sent on a mission, do they remember any of that? When the bullets start flying, do you think they're remembering the fight they had over a basketball game? No. Why? Because they're unified. They have a common goal, a common purpose, and a common calling. They have an objective, they have a goal. They've been told, you have to go do this and come back safely. And they would say, I don't, I don't care if I have a problem with this guy, I'm making sure he comes back alive for his family. And I start to think about us. When we're sent on mission, which we are, the Great Commission is our mission, when we're sent on mission, are we unified? Are we defined by our unity and our love for one another? See, I'm pretty sure that Philemon listened to Paul. I'm pretty sure that he freed Onesimus and welcomed him back as a brother. I have no reason to doubt that. But do you think it's possible that Philemon struggled with this? Wouldn't you? See, Paul reminded them that they're on a mission together. They had a, a church to disciple, a gospel to preach, and a savior to worship. Paul knew that they couldn't afford to split over this. The young church was fragile. 
The young church was ready to, to burst open at the seams. And, and Paul says, we've got to protect what God has called us to protect as under-shepherds. And in fact, since their testimonies mattered so much, Philemon couldn't afford not to welcome Onesimus back as a brother. Forgiving him and adding him to the church family made these people stand out to their neighbors as something strange and different. Some otherworldly way of behaving. See, no one here has slaves, but we have relationship conflicts. So the question that, that we all have to ask for ourselves or answer for ourselves is this. Will we forgive and accept one another as brothers or sisters? Or will we seek our own way? Will we be consumed with our rights while destroying our testimony in our community? These are, are questions that we have to ask. And based on what we see in Philemon, Philemon, if, if we believe that he did accept him back as a brother, Philemon lost, right? No one wants to lose. Philemon lost financially, right? At best, he lost an employee, Philemon probably lost face to those outside of the church who looked at him as weak, ineffective, not a good leader. Philemon lost some of his manhood a little bit, didn't he? That he had to welcome him back in, welcome Onesimus back in. But Paul says, all that you've lost... All the, the things that you've dealt with, all the things that you've suffered through because of Onesimus, you've gained so, so much more. The angels are rejoicing over Onesimus. Now it's your turn, Philemon. Be different. Be known in your community for thinking and acting differently than everyone else expects you to do. Welcoming Onesimus as a forgiven brother would not have saved Philemon. But since Philemon was a child of God, he had no choice but to act like it. Church, let this be a lesson to each and every one of us because our testimonies are at stake. Would you pray with me?